Section 20 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 20. Josephine, Part 3. A constant correspondence was kept up between herself and her husband. He prized her letters, hastily tearing them open and reading them with the greatest avidity, even in the midst of battle. During the last months of his absence, however, he neglected to write with his usual punctuality and affection, since he had become violently jealous of his wife through the misrepresentations of those who watched her with envy and malice. Reports of his defeat and even death reached France, but while the truth of it was being discussed he suddenly appeared on the shores of France with his characteristic and startling rapidity of movement. Josephine was at a magnificent levee given by Goyer, the president of the directory. When the news of Napoleon's arrival was announced, it was received with a thrill of surprise and joy by the guests who crowded the saloon, while Josephine was almost overcome at the suddenness of the event to which she had impatiently looked forward. Immediately resolving to be among the first to meet him on his way to Paris, and thus remove his unjust suspicions, she left the gay circle, and accompanied by Hortense, set out with the utmost speed. Unfortunately they passed each other by different routes, which mistake Josephine sought to repair in returning to Paris by the fleetest posts, but too late to meet the arbitrary man whose tyranny she began to feel. He would not receive her when she reached their city residence, since her absence confirmed his suspicions, nor did he abate his resentment, till by the tearful entreaties of Hortense and Eugene, and the reproaches of her friends, who reminded him of all he might have lost but for her faithful and untiring devotion to his interests in his absence, his temper was finally appeased, and he again welcomed the wife who suffered the most poignant grief from this rude repulse of her tenderest affection. They retired to Malmaison, which at once became the scene of pleasure, of political debates and ambitious schemes. In fine, it was here where Bonaparte perfected his designs upon France. Upon his return he found the government weakened by opposing factions, and Italy, which he had so triumphantly wrested from the Austrians, retaken, with but little resistance from the irresolute directory. Irritated by this, his determination was the more confirmed to be the master of his own destiny and the arbitrator of the French nation, if not of the whole of Europe. Through Josephine's foresight and alertness in discovering the designs of all parties, he was enabled to foil the directory at the moment his real aims were discovered, striking the final blow the very day on which his arrest was to have been made. He had with skilful address secured the enthusiastic services of the military, and when he appeared before the Council of Five, their cries of outlaw him down with the dictator were hushed by the appearance of the soldiery, who rushed to his rescue and scattered the representatives in utter confusion at the bayonet's point. Napoleon was immediately proclaimed First Consul. This anticipated event had been looked to by Josephine with great interest and anxiety not from ambitious or selfish motives, but because she seriously judged it to be for the glory and good of France, which, since the downfall of royalty, had known nothing but turmoil, bloodshed, and innumerable conspiracies that threatened to enact again the horrible scenes of the Revolution. The consul took up his residence at the Palace of Luxembourg. 
This soon proving too small in its dimensions, he decided to occupy the palace of the Tuileries. This was better suited to his aspirations, as having been the seat of royalty. Yet, to blind the lovers of republicanism and to secure the devotion of all, he styled it the governmental palace and had the pet word republic emblazoned in gold letters upon its front. He took possession of it with great pomp, distinguishing the occasion by military display, fireworks, and general rejoicings among the people. The first soiree given at the Tuileries was attended by all the distinguished and the beauty of Paris, as well as citizens of every class. The crowd was so great that even the private apartments were thrown open to the guests. The first consul entered to receive the congratulations and homage of the citizens, with little ceremony and in plain uniform, distinguished only by the tricolor sash, worn with good taste and with his usual policy. Curiosity and conjecture was at its height as to the style in which Josephine would appear as the wife of the hero of so many battles, the subduer of nations and the guardian of France. A curiosity greatly disappointed, when she entered, unannounced, leaning upon the arm of Talleyrand then Minister of Foreign Affairs. She was dressed with the utmost simplicity in white, her hair negligently confined with a plain comb, and with no ornament but an unostentatious necklace of pearls. The unassuming dress was the more noticeable from the marked contrast it afforded to the splendidly attired ladies in showy brocades, flashing diamonds, and waving plumes that had been selected with the most fastidious care to grace the occasion. The first expression of surprise gave way to a murmur of admiration, as Josephine gracefully passed through the apartments, saluting her guests with fascinating affability and natural becoming dignity. She was at this time in her thirty-eighth year, but she retained those personal advantages which usually belong only to more youthful years. Her stature was exactly that perfection which is neither too tall for female delicacy nor so diminutive as to detract from dignity. Her person was faultlessly symmetrical, and the lightness and elasticity of its action gave an aerial character to her graceful carriage. Her features were small and finely modelled, of a Grecian cast. The habitual expression of her countenance was a placid sweetness. Her eyes were of a deep blue, clear and brilliant, usually lying half-concealed under their long, silky eyelashes. The winning tenderness of her mild, subdued glance had a power which could tranquilize Napoleon in his darkest moods. Her hair was glossy chestnut-brown, harmonizing delightfully with a clear complexion and a neck of almost dazzling whiteness. Her voice constituted one of the most pleasing attractions and rendered her conversation the most captivating that can easily be conceived. The occurrences which followed Napoleon's seizure of power contributed to his fame and increased the enthusiasm and admiration of the French. He was ready at all times to give redress to those who entered complaints recalled men of letters and of science who had been obliged to fly, encouraged the arts, gave new impulse to manufactures, and employment to the industrious poor. Through Josephine's influence he abolished the sanguinary laws that oppressed the numerous exiles, brought back the immigrants, and restored their estates or indemnified their losses, till France became gay, happy, peaceful, and industrious, and forgot in this promising era the terrors and sufferings of the past. The consul accompanied Josephine to Malmaison to remain every Saturday and Sabbath, and on these occasions be indulged in amusements, in which he was joined by Louis Bonaparte, Duroc, Josephine, Hortense, and several young ladies of the old nobility, who had become impoverished orphans by the misfortunes of the Revolution, and whom Josephine had adopted, 
superintending their education and caring for their welfare with motherly kindness. From these unceremonious recreations they returned to the state and pomp of the Tuileries, often with visible reluctance. Napoleon's tyranny over his household and in little things increased in proportion to his power. Especially towards Josephine and her suite, he exercised a wayward and annoying surveillance that would have been insupportable to any other than his devoted patient wife. Her influence over him was widely known, and in consequence she was thronged with applicants of every description. To some she made promises, to some she granted pensions, and for others she interceded with an eloquence that rarely failed. When Napoleon exhibited the selfish, domineering spirit of crushing every obstacle that intercepted the rays of his own glory, wresting from the generals who had faithfully served him dearly worn laurels to crown his own brow, Josephine unhesitatingly reproached him for want of gratitude, and charged him with aiming at kingly power. These frequent altercations opened her eyes to his real designs, and caused an occasional coldness between them. She trembled at the suggestion of his assuming a position some day that might plunge them in as frightful a vortex as that which engulfed the last reigning king with his throne and scepter. In May 1800, Napoleon, with a brilliant army, again set out for Italy. Josephine retired to Malmaison, where she remained during his absence, indulging in her predominant passion the study of botany. She also made a collection of rare animals, many of which were sent to her from distant countries, in remembrance of some kindness she had bestowed. So general was the admiration of her character that orders were given by neighboring sovereigns to allow these gifts to pass unmolested even during the time of war. Napoleon was absent but two months. With incredible speed his army had crossed the Alps, in defiance of danger and death, descended upon the beautiful plains of Italy, and with a few brilliant strokes scattered the astounded Austrians, who believed him quietly reposing upon his laurels at the Tuileries. He returned in triumphal march, heavily laden with testimonials of gratitude from the Italians and re-entered France. Advancing towards the capital amidst the shouts of gathering crowds, roused to the highest pitch of enthusiasm. His arrival at the Tuileries at midnight was first made known to Josephine by his noisy rapid strides through her apartments, when he came to arouse her with the account of his triumphant success. These sudden interruptions of her rest were not uncommon, for when at Malmaison she was frequently awakened from deep sleep to accompany him in long walks through the botanical gardens and little forest, or to listen to some new plans which had suddenly shot through his restless brain. Not long after his return from Italy, the marriage of Hortense de Beauharnois with Louis Bonaparte took place with great pomp. This union was not prompted by affection, since Hortense preferred General de Roque an unaccountable attachment, as he was many years her senior, of few attainments, and lacked the qualities which usually attract the admiration and love of a woman. Louis Bonaparte was equally in love with a lady whose name is not transmitted to us. He was pale and slender, with a quiet, sombre air, not at all attractive. Yet he possessed many traits that won upon Josephine, and caused her to prefer him for Hortense rather than Duroc. One would suppose that the sufferings of her own early life would have prevented Josephine from influencing her daughter to a mariage de convenance, but her extreme dislike to Duroc and disapproval of his principles was her best excuse. She hoped that a union with the Bonaparte family would heal the difficulties and prevent the frequent jealousies and contentions arising between them. To these considerations Hortense was sacrificed. 
she stood in the midst of a gay assemblage, a jeweled flower-crowned bride, with a heart oppressed with an unendurable weight of sadness. As to her personal appearance, she was not exactly beautiful, for the conformation of her mouth and her teeth which rather projected, took away from the regularity of a countenance otherwise very pleasing in all its sweetness and benignity of expression. Her eyes, like her mother's, were blue, her complexion clear, and her hair of a charming blonde. In stature she did not exceed the middle size, but her person was beautifully formed, and she inherited all her mother's grace of movement. At the close of this year the consulship was bestowed upon Napoleon for life, but this additional evidence of confidence and admiration gave Josephine more anxiety than gratification, for with her keen foresight and knowledge of Napoleon's character she perceived the final result, and knew full well that his ambitious strides would soon carry him beyond the shadow of republicanism that remained. His imitation of royalty in occupying a separate suite of apartments in their new residence, in the splendid palace of St. Cloud, gave her still greater cause for anxiety. It lent a seriousness to the vague hints of divorce from Napoleon, who longed to perpetuate his power and name through descendants. Josephine, however, was not of an unhappy temperament, and was willing to close her eyes to future ills. Her influence was still in the ascendant, and with this she consoled herself though she sometimes failed in her generous attempts to rescue those who had fallen under the consul's displeasure. She was intensely interested in the fate of the Duc d'Anguien, whose life she pleaded for with unavailing tears and entreaties. The time arrived when Napoleon's crafty and unscrupulous measures enabled him to walk with powerful tread over the very bodies of his foiled enemies, to the throne which, from the first, had been the goal of his ambition. He seemed to throw a mysterious spell over the French people, managing them like a set of automaton toys, making them bow with a blind ardor before the very scepter that a short time before had been hurled from among them at such a frightful cost. Napoleon and Josephine were crowned emperor and empress at the Church of Notre Dame in the presence of an immense concourse of people. Napoleon appeared in a gorgeous state dress, attended by his marshals and all the dignitaries of France while josephine was magnificently attired and surrounded by the ladies of her suite an elegantly decorated platform had been erected at the site of the spacious church here after an imposing performance of mass napoleon received the crown from the pope placed it upon his head himself and then rested in a moment upon the brow of josephine who knelt before him in tearful agitation the notes of the te deum rolled grandly through the spacious area then died away in subdued tones, leaving a breathless silence upon the vast multitude. The testament was then presented to the emperor, who pronounced the oath with his ungloved hand resting upon the sacred book. The ceremonies finished, the imperial assemblage retired amidst deafening shouts of Vive l'Empereur! Soon after the coronation, Josephine accompanied Napoleon to Italy to receive the iron crown of ancient Lombardy that had been offered him. This second coronation took place in the magnificent cathedral of Milan. Bonaparte immediately appointed Eugene de Beauharnois viceroy of Italy, and after a triumphant tour returned in state to Paris. Josephine now saw the predictions of her greatness fulfilled but her happiness and peace decreased in proportion to the unprecedented rise of the man with whose destiny hers was linked. She seldom saw the emperor alone, he being almost always occupied in affairs of state, or travelling by post to all parts of the kingdom. 
She sometimes accompanied him, but the addresses to which she was obliged to reply, and the endless code of court ceremonials which Napoleon insisted upon being minutely observed, were so innumerable that, despite her diligence in studying them, she could not retain a fourth part of them in her head, a great annoyance to her, notwithstanding she never for a moment lost her self-possession. Her impromptu replies, rendered appropriate by her quick sense of fitness, imparted a sweetness and sincerity to whatever she said or did, and not only saved her from censure or ridicule, but increased the admiration and respect of those about her. It is said, however, that on one occasion, when departing from Rheims, Josephine presented the mayoress with a medallion of malachite, set with diamonds, using the expression, it is the emblem of hope. Some days after, on seeing this absurdity in one of the journals, she could not believe that she had used it, and dispatched a courier instantly to Napoleon, fearing his displeasure above all things. This occasioned the famous order that no journalist should report any speech of the emperor or empress, unless the same previously appeared in the Moniteur. It is also amusingly related that when about to visit one of the Rhenish cities, the ladies who wished to be presented, being in doubt as to the ceremony used on the occasion, applied to one who had already been initiated. Among other instructions she gave the following. You make three curtsies, one on entering the saloon, one in the middle, and a third a few paces farther on, en pirouette, whirling on the point of the toes. Immediately all the ladies of Cologne were practicing from morning till night, twirling away like so many spinning tops or dancing dervishes. Fortunately for themselves, as well as the dignity of the court, they learned from one of the empress's ladies of honor that a gentle inclination was all that was required, and thus were relieved from the misfortune of a misstep, and the empress and her suite were spared what must have excited irrepressible laughter and seriously disturbed the stateliness and equanimity of their imperial majesties. End of section 20